Uh, Polly Tree's doing good. I know she's back home, and as of now, she doesn't have anything further required. So that, at this point at least, that's a, that's a bonus. So just keep praying there is nothing else that she needs, no further intervention. Are there any other prayer requests we want to make known tonight? Okay, great. Well, you know, it is nice to see you all. You know, I really do like to teach the Bible, and I like to see you all. So that's good. Let's, uh, we always have a, a reading of some scripture, usually just First John 1, 9, but let's read a few. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's Hebrews 4.12. And the word of God is like a sword. It's like a double-edged sword. And it um, gets right to the heart of the matter. Second uh, Timothy says, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that's a great passage on the doctrine of, of inspiration. So one on just the Bible itself, bibliology, another on inspiration, a subset of bibliology. Then Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill or carry out the desire of the flesh. And of course, this is a doctrine of sanctification, uh, how we live the Christian life, a branch of soteriology. And then, of course, uh, if we do fail to live by the Spirit, then we uh, live by the flesh and we commit sin, and this needs to be confessed. So if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from each unrighteousness. So that's also a dimension of our um, sanctification, and we want to uh, confess. And so we always just take a time in the privacy of our soul to do that. So let's just uh, bow for a word of prayer and uh, have a moment of silence for each one of us. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. You've given us one more day in this world, and there must be a purpose for that, so help us to fulfill that purpose uh, when we uh, continue tonight and, and when we wake up in the morning, um, if we're still here, to know that this is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And uh, tonight, as we study, uh, may we realize the world... The universe, the cosmos, is much more complicated uh, perhaps than just our five senses can detect. And there's a lot more going on behind the scenes that makes itself uh, very apparent uh, in the midst of our lives. And um, it's not just human motion, animal motion, human decisions that are, that are at work here, but there are actually... Uh, angelic conflict and demonic activity that is taking place and uh, we can become too materialistic, too scientific in our outlook on the world and we need to be careful, especially in the West, uh, of not looking at everything in such terms. But remembering there is there's a whole other realm of other living beings that are uh, at work and most, many of them hostile to us. And uh, yet we have the Spirit of God who lives in us. 
and they cannot overtake or possess us, but still they can tempt us, still, still they can oppress and suppress us, and uh, certainly then we need to be aware and be ready by putting on the full armor of God. So uh, we pray that we have a greater insight into Christ's power and his sovereignty and his authority over these beings uh, tonight. Uh, And we ask that you would just teach us these things and uh, help us to teach these things to others also. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so before we get started, if you have any interest at all, in uh, any of the Chafer courses, Chafer Theological Seminary courses, here are the courses that are... Be- I know you can't read that, right? There's no way you can read that. So in the fall semester, which is up top, 2019, and everything I'm grabbing doesn't work, so just shake it, right? Okay, Introduction to Apologetics, that's Defending the Faith. Uh, John Eidsmo is teaching that, Dr. Eidsmo. Hermeneutics and Bible study methods, Josh Meyer. Uh, wisdom literature, nobody knows who's teaching that. Intertestamental history between the, and, and the Gospels, Clay Ward, friend of mine in Tullahoma, Tennessee, pastor there at Play Roma Bible Church. Spiritual life, Robert Dean and David Roseland. So that's Robbie down in Houston and David Roseland up in Connecticut. Uh, both guys I know. Dan, beginning Greek, Dan Ingram, I know Dan. He's up in, he lives, he's in Washington, you know, the Washington, you know capital. Yes, the capital of our country. That's where he ministers. He's teaching beginning Greek, intermediate Greek, Anthony Griego, beginning Hebrew, Dave Roseland, uh, theology proper, Ray Mondragon, who's on site and where the seminary is in Albuquerque. Uh, Dr. J.B. Hickson teaches anthropology, homardiology, and soteriology, and then Charlie Clough teaches Christian Framework 1. So all those are being offered in the fall. If you have any kind of interest, you might want to go on their website and let them know that you have some interest so that course can make and then you could be a part of it. You can take the courses for credit or you can take them for just as a audit, okay? Uh, which is much cheaper, obviously. But if you go from our church, you get to go for free because we support them to a certain amount. So you might as well take it for credit, right? You get free. It's like free school. Free school. Anybody hear that? They don't do that anymore. Free school. Yep. Doug. A certain time of day, or they... Are the courses at a certain time of day? Are they scheduled? There will be... Uh, they'll, they'll be scheduled where you have like a live course through you know, your computer or something like that. Okay. And then in the spring, there's some other classes. Uh, First Samuel, some of them are exposition, like First Samuel to Esther. One, that's Clay Ward again. Prophets. Uh, nobody's teaching that yet. Anybody want to teach the prophets? Yeah, okay. Uh, kingdom and Covenants, Dr. Andy Woods. He's the president of the seminary, and uh, he's written a book on the kingdom. Uh, free, Ga- free Grace versus Lordship Salvation Controversy, David Roseland, who I mentioned in Connecticut. Church History One, that's Robbie Dean. Um, he's taught that before. Beginning Greek, again, Danny, Dan Ingram. Intermediate Greek, Anthony Griego. Then Beginning Hebrew, yeah, that was here too, um, David Roseland. Prolegomena, you know what that is? Nobody knows what that is. It's okay. It means like first words. It's like an introduction to theology. Um, bibliology, study of the Bible. Angelology, that's David Broersma. Then we have ecclesiology, the study of the church. And eschatology, last things, that's Ray Mondragon. And then Christian framework two, that's Charlie Clough. And then dispensationalism, that's me, Jeremy Thomas. Okay? So anyway, if you have any interest in those things, um, especially the fall, let them know so the course can make. Okay? 
All right, I did that real fast, and but I don't want it to go overlooked. Okay. All right, last time in chapter 8 of the Gospel of Luke. So let's continue this section where he is moving about the Galilee. And pretty soon here, we're going to be moving to what's called the Travelogue, which is like 10 chapters where he's traveling from, from the Galilee to Jerusalem. And then, of course, we know when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and we'll come to the close of the book of the Great Commission. But, um, you know, this stuff is so insightful. If you just take time to go through the Gospels and realize the magnitude of what's taking place, the magnitude of his person, the magnitude of his work, and as you go through each little pericope, there's just, there's just you know, one more gem, one more gem, one more gem to add to the collection. And if, if, if I could ever, if you could ever get all the gems together, you know, the marvels, the riches, uh, the wisdom of God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So, last time we studied Luke 8, verses 16 to 21, which is the parable of the lamp. And then verses 22 to 25, where Jesus calms the storm. Okay, so let's review the parable of the lamp. This is an extension of the fourth soil in the parable of the sower. And uh, Jesus is wanting that fourth soil, those who heard and really understood, to take the truth they understood and to teach it or share it with others. What's interesting is this was contrary to what he would do. He's going to keep these things hidden because of the rejection of the leadership. And that's going to lead to his crucifixion. The nation's going to crucify him. But the disciples are going to continue to minister after the crucifixion these things. So they're going to have to tell these truths to others even though he's concealing them. In verse 16, he expresses this uh, idea in a parable. He says, no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. Okay, so his whole point is that the disciples should not hide their light, but, you know, let their light shine, you know, meaning share the truth that they know. Okay, and the truth in this context, of course, is that the kingdom was going to be postponed. You know, Jesus came to establish the kingdom on earth. Um, that's why he says in Matthew 10, 5 through 7, go Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do not go to the Samaritans. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. That's because there was a real offer of the kingdom to that generation. But that was rejected just before he spoke in these parables. And so now there's going to be a postponement of the kingdom from the human perspective, of course. And the gospel is going to go out to all nations. And then the kingdom will come, right? So he wants them to tell that truth to us or let your light shine. He says in verse 17, why they should do this. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. In other words, look, it's going to come out anyway. I mean, as history progresses, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised, and then I'm going to ascend. I'm not going to be here. The king is not going to be here. And so it's going to be quite evident that the kingdom is not here if the king is not here. And yet more than probably 90% of Christendom believes that the kingdom is now, okay? But, uh, well, maybe they're not in the fourth soil and they just don't have understanding. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's an enigma to me how so many people can, can miss this very plain thing. The kingdom is not here. I mean, where's the king if the kingdom's here? So because it was going to be known anyway and come to light, they should share it with others. Maybe we just need to share it with more people and then they could get the message. I don't know. In verse 18, though, the disciples are given a warning. 
Beware of how you listen. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. In other words, you know, what you do with the truth that you have, he says, is critical. If you share this truth of the kingdom's postponement with others, then you're going to get more truth. But if you don't, even the truth you think you have, he says, is going to be taken away. Okay? And we can just draw a principle out of this. Okay? The truth that we have, we should be passing on to other people. If we're doing that, guess what? He's going to, make, he's going to give us understanding of more truth. Okay? This is what, before, when I was going to seminary, or thinking of going to seminary, and when I go to, went to seminary, and all those things, the whole... I mean, look, look what you're doing. You're, you're an idiot going to seminary, okay? You don't... What are you doing? You, you're going to a profession. You don't... This is not a profession where you make money, okay? You're going to go learn this stuff and, and you know, leave your wife, you know, and go study every evening and every Saturday in your early years of marriage for what? You don't even have any prospect of what you're going to do with what you're learning. But what, what you're, when you take the attitude that, hey, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do with what I'm learning here. I'll, I'll teach a Sunday. This was my outlook the whole time. I'll teach a Sunday school class. I'll fill in for the pastor. I'll do whatever. Okay? And I ended up here. That's where I ended up. Okay? And the whole thing is, is this. If you are given truth, and you take that truth, and you want to tell that truth to other people, guess what he'll do? He'll give you more understanding of the truth. Why? Because he's like, huh, here's the guy who'll use what I'm giving him, so I'm going to give him more, so he's going to use it more. And that's awesome. That's what I want. That's what God wants. Okay? So, but he says on the other side of the coin, um, if you don't, then what you think you have, I'm going to take away. You know, you're going to be losing truth, so to speak. In verse 19, while Jesus was teaching this, and he was inside a house when he did, he received word that outside his mothers and brothers were wanting to see him. And, but he said instead that his mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. You know, he wasn't dissociating himself from them entirely, but what he was really saying was he's teaching a spiritual lesson. Those who are my closest family members, those who are closest to me, are those who don't just listen to what I say, but they're the ones who do it. They're the ones who obey. Okay? And in this case, it's... It's the believers who tell other people the truth. Those are the ones who are doing what he says because that's what he wants. Tell people what I said. He could do it himself. He could put himself on a loudspeaker over the universe and let everybody know like he did at Mount Sinai and everything in the valley, right? But he says, no, I've, I'm, I am delegating this to you. It's your responsibility, Nick, and I want you to do it. So that's, that's the lesson of the lamp. Now, the verse 22, he goes on now. And he's just taught, so now what he wants to do after he's taught orthodoxy is he wants to back that up with some signs to authenticate that this is from God, this truth is from God. So there's four signs, and the first one is introduced in verse 22. It relates to his power over nature. Now, in one of those days, but, you know, Mark says it's the same day, actually. It was that evening, and... Um, at that time, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. And, but then something strange happened in verse 23. It says, as they were sailing along, Jesus dropped off to sleep. Uh, you know, he was exhausted. It had been a long day. He literally conked out. I mean, he was a true human. That's what this is saying. He's a real human. And then uh, a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake from the surrounding hills and mountains, and it, it was a great storm. 
and the waves got bigger and bigger and they began to flood the boat and the, their lives were in danger. And uh, Jesus was just taking a nap. Mark says he was, uh, had his head on a cushion. You know. So they had pillows of some sort back then. In verse 24, they came to Jesus and they woke him up and they said, Commander, Commander, we're perishing. And so he got up and he rebuked the wind and the surging waves and the wind just stopped and it became calm. I mean, it was just a word. I mean, he just said it and that was it. It was calm. I mean, it didn't, like most storms, you know, it's this big thing and it gradually dies off. No, 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 no. Instant. Instant calm. Rebuke. That's it. It just went flat. Okay. And uh, we pointed out that this word rebuke is a word that's actually used for exercising demons. And so there's a good possibility that there were demons behind this storm. And what they were trying to accomplish was, hey, look, here's Jesus and all his top guys out in the middle of the Lake of Galilee. Let's just kill them all in one fell swoop, and that'll be the end of that. Then he can't die for the sins of the world and all that kind of stuff, right? We can put this whole thing to rest. But Jesus rebuked them, these demons, and brought the whole thing to rest. In verse 25, the apostles were fearful and amazed, and they said to one, or one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Okay? So they were s still trying to come to grips with, with who he was. Okay? And that's the big question. You know, in this whole section, Luke is trying to get us to track along with him and go ask the same question. Who is, who is this guy? Who is he? Okay, and of course the answer is he's the messianic, he's the Messiah, he's the God-man, okay? Because on one hand he's asleep, I mean it's been a long day, the guy's a human, okay? On the other hand the guy can just speak and the entire Sea of Galilee and all the wind just stop, so he's God, okay? So the question then is, you know, why, why really are the disciples uh, fearful and amazed? I mean, don't they know who he is? Well, not really, Okay, not really. They didn't really get it. People go, well, but, the, but they're the apostles. I don't care who they are. They didn't get it, okay? They're going up to Jerusalem way after this, and they're, Jesus is saying, I'm going to die and all this stuff, and Peter's saying, no. No, you're not. I don't know. What, what do you think? Do you think Peter knew who he was and what he was come to do? No, he didn't really know. Not if he's standing against him. He said, get behind me. What are you trying to do? Get in the way of the plan of God? I mean, I can see Jesus now. Did you guys ever read Psalm 22? What about Psalm 16? What's wrong with you people? Isaiah, did you read Isaiah 53? No, they didn't get it, okay? And a lot of times we don't get it because guess what happens? We all come into storms in our life, difficult things. We're frustrated. We're stressed out. We're like, God, why did you put me in here? And we forget all along that guess who's right there with us? We forget. We do the same thing they forgot. They did, see? We forget the nature of the one who is with us in our storms, see? And that's the whole point. So he's the God-man. He does a sign to authenticate his teaching ministry from nature, and it has very practical application for all of our lives. So now we move to the second sign. There's going to be four in all. The one over nature, the one tonight over demons, the one next week over sickness, and the one after that, which will be over death, his power over death, Okay. So this sign, the second sign, is in verses 26 to 39, and he casts out a demon named Legion, okay? So to introduce this, um, again, where are they? They're sailing across the Sea of Galilee. It was about, it was 
from where they went to where they went is probably about 10 miles. The distance across is only 8 miles, but they didn't go a straight line. So they're kind of going from the northwest to the southeast side. Okay? And recall, it's nighttime, and, uh, but maybe coming to daylight. Let's see. Recall verse 22. Let's recall a start at verse 22. You say, well, we're at verse 26. It's okay. Back up. Jesus said this, let's go, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Okay, the, that phrase is a technical phrase, other side. I know it doesn't stick out to us, but for the Jews, that meant the Gentile side. Okay, because the Jews lived on the west side of the Lake of Galilee. Gentiles lived on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so the side they had been on, the Jewish side, was what they called our side. And... The Gentiles, that's the other side, non-kosher. Here's a quote from Page, who said this. In the Jewish mindset, it was understood that the other side was contrasted with our side, the Jewish, kosher, religiously correct side. Okay? So they're going over to some Gentiles. Okay? And this region is known as the Decapolis. Decapolis from Deca, from Ten, and Polis from City. So there's ten Gentile cities over there in the Gentile side, where they're going. In verse 26, we pick up with the story as they go to the other side. Then, at, then, which is after the storm has died down, okay, so the waters are flat. This is the time to go water skiing, okay? Right? It's perfectly calm. It's glass, okay? They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, okay? Now, the parallel in Matthew eight twenty-eight doesn't say that. It says... Um, they went into the country of the Gadarenes. You see the difference in those two words, Gerasenes and Gadarenes? And every critic of the Bible picked this up and said, oh, look, it's an obvious contradiction in the Bible. Um, but the truth is, like always, they never, never dig in too deep. If they were, they know that uh, this area, the word Gadara, from which we get Gadarenes, is a term for the region. And the word Gerasa is the name of the city in the region. So there's not a contradiction. It'd be like in Matthew saying uh, Gillespie, uh, the, the area of Gillespie, and then uh, Luke saying Fredericksburg. Uh, well, yeah, we know that Fredericksburg is in Gillespie County. That's not complicated for us, okay? Well, the same thing here. Gadara is the region. Garasa is the city in the region, the main city in the region, so not a problem. Uh, Fruchtenbaum said the city of Garasa was in the region of Gadara. Matthew focuses on the region while the other gospel writers emphasize the city within the region. Okay, so they're both true. It's just one's more specific than the other. It's not an issue, though. So in verse 27, And when he came out onto the land, so they've, they've hit the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in tombs. Um... So notice here that the man was from the city, uh, which city is uh, verse 26. It's Gerasa. That's the city. That, that, that confirms our whole point that Gerasa is the city and Gadara that Matthew mentions is the region. Okay. Obviously, the city was pretty close to the water because it notes that when he came out onto the land, a timing phrase, he was met by, by this man that was from this city. Okay. But obviously he wasn't living in the city. It says uh, in the verse that he was living outside the city. He was living in some tombs. You say, what do you mean living in some tombs? You know, Not like our tombs, of course. The tombs over in the Middle East. Um, now these are bigger. Well, actually you can see 
Actually, you can see some modern, more modern tombs up here, but um, probably from the late 1800s, early 1900s. This is a whole hill of these type of tombs. But these are the types of tombs. This is down in the Kidron Valley. I mean, the Temple Mount is literally like where I'm standing, you know, like proportionally it'd be where I'm standing. Um, so this is called the Kidron Valley right here. It's this deep valley. And in 2008, Brian Williams and I, like, we walked down here. I don't know if we were supposed to do this kind of stuff or not. But I know there's a lot of Arabs that live right down over here, down the valley, and it's not exactly the most comfortable place to be. There's not many people over here. Um, but we decided to go down here and crawl up in these tombs. Well, I did. I said, come on, let's go. <laughs> and uh, he, he went with me. And we crawled in those things. I mean, you can crawl and you climb that back in there. And uh, we did. And we took some pictures. I looked for those pictures. I've got them somewhere. I couldn't find them today. But... Um, I mean, this is like Zachari- I think this is called Zachariah's tomb. It's not really Zachariah's tomb. It's named that. This one's called Absalom. Maybe it's Absalom's pillar. This is Absalom's pillar, and this is Zachariah's tomb or something like that. But you can climb all back in here. Okay, look, this is really big. Like if I was a person standing on that ledge right there, my head would be like right there. My whole body would be like right there. I mean, it's really big. But um, same idea, though. They hewed these tombs out of rock, okay? And that's what this guy was living in outside the city of Gerasa. Okay, something like that, smaller, but like that. Okay, and look at the man. It says, uh, the description, it says he had not put on any clothing for a long time. I mean, the guy's just running around stark naked, so it's pretty obvious that the guy, uh, something's not right. There's a problem, okay? And the thing that's not right, we're told, is that he was possessed with demons. Okay, demons. So, uh, plural. So he had many demons possessing him, okay? Now, in the Matthew account, it says this. It says two men who were demon-possessed, not just one. Okay? And it says that they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. I mean, you couldn't go, you, nobody went out there. Okay? I don't know what they did for funerals, but they couldn't go that way. Okay? Now, uh, the critics of the Bible, again, because Luke says there was one, or just mentions one, and Matthew says there was two, they say, well, look, it's an obvious contradiction in the Bible. But again, they don't know enough about ancient history because it was a common method of reporting to only emphasize the most prominent if there were two. This is the same thing with the angels at the tomb at the resurrection, right? Like one of the accounts only mentions an angel. The others mention two angels. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? You know, we got a contradiction. No, it's not a contradiction. It's just a common way they reported. They emphasized the most prominent individual, you know? A lot of times, like football teams or something, they only evaluate and, you know, like actually report and get a, you know, um, do a little um, interview with like the most prominent guy on the team. They don't interview everybody. Does that mean there's only one guy on the team? No, I didn't mean that. Why is it they can always find these contradictions in the Bible, but they don't find them on the football field? Anyway, so it's pretty evident they don't want to believe the Bible, okay? So the mention of only one by Luke doesn't negate that there was another nor does Matthew's mention of two contradict Luke, Luke because all Matthew's doing is just giving a fuller picture. He did an extra interview. So what we can gather then is that there were two men, of course, and they were both demon-possessed, but one, we would say, had more demons than the other, and he was therefore the more prominent of the two. And Luke focuses on the more prominent guy. And uh, so he's running around naked, uh, possessed with demons. Mark adds this. Oh, uh, Matthew said extremely violent. Nobody can even go by there. Mark 5.5 5 says constantly day and night he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Okay, now look, it's, it's pretty obvious that this is not a thing you want. You don't want to be demonically possessed. 
because the activity you get involved in is extreme pain and suffering. Okay? It causes extreme pain and suffering to the person who is possessed. Okay? So um, this realm is there, and we don't want to forget that this is a real realm, and it's with us today. It's with us today. Okay? So let's see what happens in verse 28. Seeing Jesus, he cried out, and he fell before him, and he said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not, do not torment me. Okay. Now remember, they just got out of the boat, and Jesus is just walking up. The parallel in Mark 5, 6 says that when he had seen Jesus, it says from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Um, now, I... This, the man, the man, the human, had never seen Jesus before. Jesus had never gone over there. It's not the man who's recognizing Jesus. It's the demon in the man, okay, who had quite obviously uh, encountered Jesus before, <laughs> uh, as all demons have, right? So he fell before him and... We're going to see that this demon has so much control over the man that it's not the man bowing down to worship Jesus, okay? It's the demon bowing in submission to an authority, to the authority of Christ, right? And so the demon said, what business do we have with each other? Um, the Greek just says, what I and you, tis emu kai su. That's all it says. Tis emu kai su. What I to you. Or what I and you. What, it, but it doesn't, that doesn't mean anything to any of us. What I and you. So we find that if we study close, we learn this is a Hebrew idiom. And it means basically, could you just leave me alone? You know, like get out of here. Would you please just get out of here? Do we have to have this confrontation right now? I really don't want to see you right now. Okay. Um, the next thing, and that'd be a better translation. With, with what business do we have with each other? The next thing the demon said identi is it identifies who Jesus is. I mean, the demon says, "Jesus, Son of the Most High God." I mean, he's affirming that Jesus is God. Okay. Um, when he says "Most High," it's "Hufistos." It means the one who is highest in status. And the demon recognized Jesus as being the son of the God who is the highest in status. That is relative to other perceived gods and goddesses that people had. He's really the only true God, of course. But this is a way of stating that he is, he is God. He is the alone God. Um, now what's interesting is you know, the, the question of this whole section, what's this, the question over and over we see in each pericope? Who is Jesus? Who, who, who is he? Um, they asked him that when he stilled the winds and the waves, right? They said, who is this? You know, um, let me ask you a question. Does the demon know who he is? He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly who he is, okay? Lastly, the demon says to him, I beg you, do not torment me, Okay? Um, the demon knew that Jesus ultimately is going to judge them and, torment, and they'll be 
placed in everlasting torment. I mean, they know that, okay? But uh, in Matthew, it asks it a little different. It says, uh, he says, are you, have you come to torment us before the time? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now, there, in other words, what the demon knows is that there's a time when we're going to be judged and placed in torment. He, the demon knows that. The demon has some pretty good theology. Okay, so when is it that the demons are going to be cast into torment? Okay, well, you, at this time, there's no cross, so I can't draw a cross up here, can I? Okay, but let's just do it anyway, okay, because it'll help us. Okay, and then we're going to have this thing called the church, right? Which at this time, nobody even knows about that. And that's never, nobody ever talked about the church. It's just Israel and the king is there and they're expecting, hoping the kingdom will come. But again, it's going to get postponed because they just rejected him. That's, that's this period, okay? The postponement of the kingdom during which the church will take place, which is where we are. Then, of course, the church ends at the rapture, right? Christ descends, we ascend. Okay, and I'll put rap. It doesn't mean you have to go into that kind of music or anything. But um, that's when the rapture is going to happen, right? And we'll be taken to heaven, to the Father's house, where we'll be, go to the judgment seat of Christ and judged for our works done in the body, whether good or bad, we'll be rewarded or not accordingly. Okay? And then the kingdom's postponement will end, okay? And Jesus will come back after the time of difficulty, the seven years of tribulation, right? And then, and then you have the kingdom. Okay, right? So when are, is it that the demon, this demon, who's saying, please don't torment us, have you come to torment us before the time? When are they going to be tormented? Well, the time they're going to be put into torment is right when the, before the kingdom begins because Satan is cast out for a thousand years. And it's not just Satan. It's all, okay? And they'll be cast into the abyss. And uh, Satan's going to be cast into the abyss. And later in this passage, it talks about the abyss. So we know it's talking about the exact same event. And that event is in Revelation 20, verses 1 and 3 where they're cast in the abyss. So there won't be any demonic activity during the kingdom. They'll all be cast into torment. Okay, and he's saying, the demon is saying, have you come to do this before the time? Okay, that's what the demon is asking. They have pretty good theology. They have an outline of what's going to happen in history. They know what's coming. They know. Okay. Now in verse... Uh, where are we at? 29? 29. The reason the demon thought Jesus was about to send him to torment is here. Because, for, because he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. So that if I've got to come out of the man, then what's the next step? Where, 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 are you gonna, where am I going to go? Are you going to throw me into torment? See? So he's thinking this might be the time. Then we, give, we get more description of just how powerful this demon is was over this man how much control he had over this man it says for it had seized him many times the demon had seized the man many times and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert in other words this is when all that whenever this started the guy lived in the town of Gerasa, right i mean he was just another citizen like you and i in fredericksburg right but he kept getting the word says forcibly seized upon by the demon this happened multiple times, and the local authorities, of course, they can't let that go on. So they would bind the guy with chains and shackles and put him under guard, okay, in order to protect everybody in grass, right? 
But it says he would break the chains and shackles and he'd be driven by the demon out into the surrounding desert. So this, this, this happened. And um, obviously, I think what we have to grasp here is that this is a very extreme form of demon possession. Probably the most extreme. It is the most extreme I know of in the whole Bible uh, as far as description of someone who's possessed. This is not the description we always find. This is an extreme uh, description. But look, the demon had taken over his speech faculties. I mean, the demon is speaking through him. Um, he had taken over his physical faculties so he could exert his own power through the man. And according to Mark 5.15, this man was mentally insane. The demon had caused him to go into a state of mental insanity. Um, now, I'm going to say some things about... Uh, demons and their activity that I probably never said before, um, and I'm going to be I'm going to say these things with caution. So I'm just prefacing them with caution. People have studied these things and researched a lot demonic activity uh, or people that could be involved in demonic activity and tried to classify and figure out, you know, what, how does this work, and and what should we expect to find um, in people who are demon possessed and so forth. And um, John Newport, in his little article on demonology and theology in a book called Demon Possession, he said he thought that the Gadarene demoniac who dwelt in the tomb and was possessed of superhuman strength was insane. Why? Uh, because in the parallel in Mark 5.15, it says that when the demon was cast out, the man was found clothed and in his right mind. And Luke also says the same thing. To accomplish all this, he concluded that this demon must have taken possession of the center of, man, of the man's personality. And that this man was therefore under extreme demonic possession. Okay, well, I'm going to add some more to this in a bit, but let's move on. Verse 30. So Jesus addressed this demon directly and asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Now, asking a demon his name, that was actually the common method that a Jewish exorcist would use. Okay? He always had to get access to the name of the demon. That was the method they used, methodology that Jewish exorcisers used. Um, Jesus doesn't always follow this method, obviously. A lot of times he doesn't ask the name at all. Okay? And he's doing that to show that he doesn't have to use their method. But he did on this occasion. Um, and Constable thought that he did this because he's doing it actually for the benefit of his disciples. Like he wants, he wants the, the demon to reveal more about himself so that everybody gets the true picture who's there, okay? And the demon answered, legion. Of course, legion is not a formal name. It's a, it's a Roman military unit, you know, a group of soldiers. Um, a legion would refer to about 6,000 soldiers, a lot, a, a lot. A legion was a big group of warriors. Um, and that's basically what's indwelling this man. Okay? And it doesn't say technically there's 6,000 exactly, you know, exactly 6,000 demons indwelling him because the explanation is our name is Legion because many demons had entered him. So many, okay, a lot, okay? 6,000 or not, you know, I don't know the exact number, but a lot, okay? Now, um, I'm going to make another comment. This was a comment made by a guy named Bloch about the names of demons. Okay, and he said this. Um, the names of the demons 
should be understood as representing desires implanted in the heart by Satan. And he gives some examples like death, lust, hatred. What, what, what he's saying, let, let's, let's understand what he's saying. If a demon named itself, what he's saying is that represents some desires that Satan had implanted in the person. So the desire in this case wouldn't be death or lust or hatred, but it would be power. Six thousand, you got a you got an army of six thousand demons in you? Okay, that's a lust for power, is what he would be saying. That Satan implanted this in this man. Okay, now I'm not sure I agree with that entirely, but the man could have had a natural lust for power. Okay. Some people have power lust, right? Most of them are in Washington. Otherwise it wouldn't be there, right? But that's why we have balanced powers, right? Because as long as you have strong people in the other branches, they're supposed to keep the people in the other branches in order. Because it's supposed to all be people who are powerful and want to be there. Okay? Unfortunately, one branch seems to want to be more powerful, and some of the other branches don't really want to stand up and do anything about it. Uh, but anyway, he goes on. He says, the voices of the demons should generally be interpreted. So when we hear a demon speaking through a person like here, we should generally interpret that as the voice of the other self. The self, he's saying, that Satan implanted in the guy. The alter ego. Okay, although the content of what is said may very well be directed by the devil. What, what he seems to be getting at in this quote, which is interesting, is that for some reason or another, this guy, this man, had power lust. Did Satan put it there? Was it his own flesh? I don't know. But when demons came to indwell him, they exacerbated that lust for power so that nobody can control this guy. See what I'm saying? I mean, you could chain him all you wanted, and you're not going to stop him. Okay? You're not going to stop him. He's just going to snap the chains. Um, so what Jesus demonstrates then, because this guy is like superhuman power, like nothing you could ever imagine. Nothing any of us could ever imagine. You've got 6,000 demons in you, and these aren't little fairies. Okay, scary stuff. And, uh, but Jesus is going to demonstrate to his disciples, who now know that <laughs> there's a lot of demons in this guy, that he is so much stronger than Satan and all demons in the world. That's what this is about. His power, his infinite power, over de demonic activity. Now, so up to this point, verse 30, all the personal pronouns have been singular. The man said he, it's like the man is talking almost, but now in verse 31 and following, everything switches to the plural because it's reflecting there's more than one demon in this man. It's a legion of demons. And so in verse 31, it says they were imploring him they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Remember I said that earlier? They didn't want to go to torment before the time. The torment's in the abyss. It starts at the millennial kingdom. Okay. Now what's so interesting, okay, by the way, verse 29 said, if you look at verse 29, it says he commanded them to go out of the man. Like, he, like get out. But they didn't go out. They're not out yet, okay? In verse 31, they're still in the man, okay, and so they're imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Okay, they, they have a lot of concerns. It's interesting how much concern they have over where they're going to be sent. Um, but they, 
I guess we would be the same, you know. If we were getting kicked out, we'd want to know, well, where do we have to go? <laughs> well, they had the same type of concern. And uh, they were imploring him. It's an imperfect tense, over and over. Many different demons implored him. That's the picture. And what they feared was his command, okay? Why do they fear his command? Because they have to obey whatever he commands. Why? Because he is the son of the most high God. And they have to do exactly what he says. And there is no discussion. He is the absolute authority. He is in total power. And they don't want to go into the abyss. The abyss. Uh, They didn't even translate this word. It's just from the Greek word abusas. And it has two meanings in the Greek. It can mean an immensely deep space, or secondly, it can mean a transcendent place, meaning it's not material, but a transcendent place associated with the dead and hostile powers. And the latter is what is meant here. Okay, but even here, when you study the passages that use abyss, you see distinctions. So um, the first use of abyss that we see is like, for example, Romans 10, 7, where it's used for like the grave or the location of departed spirits. It's not clear. Those aren't the same. The grave and the location of departed spirits are not the same. (laughs) What I'm saying is I don't know 100% what Romans 10, 7 is speaking about. Is it talking about the grave or is it talking about a place where Jesus' spirit went? Okay, I'm saying it's not clear because it just says, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. You mean bring his body up from the dead or bring his spirit up from the, another place? See, it's not spelled out, okay? But it's either the grave here or it's a location of his Christ departed spirit. But secondly, and most usages seem to refer to the bottomless pit, the sec- like a bottomless pit of confinement, like a prison. Um, and here is... Here's the usage of that, Revelation 20 with reference to uh, Satan. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. That, that's when all the, the demons get locked away for the thousand years, and we'll get to see what the world would be like if demons weren't here. You know, Because we really don't know what it would be like. Because they are here. And we've never been in a world, we haven't, where there weren't demons. It would, it's going to be very interesting. It would be very interesting. Can you imagine? Just, just one day without demons in the world. We would be able to, I, I, I guarantee you, every human on the planet would know something is different. Every human. Okay, so... Um, They are saying, don't throw us in this abyss, Revelation 20, verse 1, don't lock us away, okay? That's what they don't don't want, okay? In verse 32, the demons are still in the man. They still haven't been cast. They're still not out. And we're told more about the scene. It says, now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. Okay, we're not told how many swine, but Mark says it was 2,000, okay? About 2,000. So they're like, hey, we'd rather go into the uh, swine than go into the abyss, right? So 
um, they are imploring him, notice, to permit them. Permit us. Not, not to command them to go into the swine, but just to permit them. Okay, can we, can we go into them? Okay. Mark says the same thing. He says permit. Okay, and Matthew is not as full. Jesus just says go. You know, kind of like do whatever you want. Um, at any point, uh, at any rate, this, the significant point here is this. The demons can only do what Jesus permits them to do. I mean, they're like, hey, what can we do? I mean, because it's up to him. It's up to him. Okay, he is in command. Okay. Now, in verse 33, um, the demons finally, demons finally came out of the man, and they entered the swine, and the herd, look at this, what they do. They rushed down the steep bank into the lake and, and drowned. I've always, I've always thought, what? I mean, have you ever, don't you read this the same way? And you're like, what, what, is, what is the significance of this? I mean, like, we all know it, but it's like, okay, what then? I mean, what happened to the demons then? I mean, that's what we all kind of want to know. And, of course, it never tells us. Um, what this signifies is not entirely clear, but in the Old Testament, okay, the abyss, okay, referred to the depths, and it could be associated with the depths of the sea. For example, in the Septuagint, the LXX, which is the Greek, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, of Genesis 1-2, it uses abyss for the deep waters. And what are they going into right now? The waters of the Galilee, see? In Genesis 7:11, it says, "The fountains of the great deep burst open, the great abyss." Okay? The great abyss burst open. So the significance of the swine rushing down that steep bank into the depths of the lake may be to symbolically depict the demons being sent into the abyss before the time. Maybe. Does that make sense? It's a depiction of. That's a preview of their being finally cast into the abyss in Revelation 20 at the Millennial Kingdom. It's just a preview of that. So they go into the swine. They rush down into the abyss, so to speak. Okay, And you say, well, what then happened to them? Because all the swine drowned, so what happened to the demons? Well, I mean, presumably they left that host and wandered about aimlessly. We don't know. We just don't know. At any rate, there, there was about 2,000 swine, okay, pigs, okay. And they had herdsmen who were watching over them. Now, how do you think they felt? Are you kidding me? Let's put in cattle. 2,000 cattle, you know. I don't know cattle's worth way more than a pig, but anyway, you get the point, right? Financial loss. So verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. Okay? So they didn't just walk. They ran okay, in fear. And they reported it in the city of Gerasa and in the surrounding country of Gadara. Okay? These are Gentile people. They're telling Gentile people. And uh, according to Matthew, if we went to Matthew, the main thing they were reporting was the financial loss. Hey, we, <laughs> we had 2,000 pigs. This guy you know, sends these this demons into them, and they go off, and now they're all dead. You know, and secondly, they also did include in their report that, well, there was this demoniac. You know the guy out there? Well, now he's, he's fine. So in verse 35, this caused people to go out there and, 
and check it all out for themselves. So it says the people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. Okay? So they found Jesus, the responsible party for this whole thing, right? They found the man, okay, who was a beneficiary, but they didn't find the swine. That's the thing they didn't find. Okay? And what shocked them when they got there was that this man who was totally uncontrollable and could not live among among them in the city is now clothed and in his right mind. He's not naked anymore. He's got clothes on. He's, he's, uh, he's not insane anymore. He's not uncontrollable anymore. He, but he's sitting there in sound mind, and it says he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, the one who made him well. And that's a technical phrase, sitting at the feet of. One who sat at the feet of another was what? A student. And the other was a teacher. And that's exactly what's happening here. He's positioned himself as a student, and he's learning from the master, and the master's instructing him. Because this man wanted to know the truth. This man wanted to know the truth. This Gentile wants to know the truth. This man who is demonically possessed, running around naked for who knows how long, totally uncontrollable, is now a sound mind and wants to know the truth. And when the people saw this, it says they became frightened. I mean, because they knew this man's history. There's no way this change could take place. So in verse 36, they say, well, how could, how could it take place? Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. Okay? So obviously there, was a lot of, there were several eyewitnesses at least, and they're able to give a full report of the events. They said, you know, Jesus and these people, they came aboard. They were staying on the shore. This man runs over to meet them. He's naked. He's falling down. He's at, at his feet crying out in a loud voice. Uh, they have this conversation with this demon that's possessing this man who's named Legion, and, and Jesus permitted him to go out and go into the swine and they torrentially just descend in the Sea of Galilee and drown and this man is fine. He's in sound mind. He clothed himself. He sat down to sit at the feet of the master and learn. And uh, so they're getting this report. And the description of the man then at the end of verse 36, it says he was made well. And the Greek word is saved. Sozo is the same word that's used for our spiritual deliverance. Um, but obviously here it's being used of his physical deliverance. The man was saved from this physical torture that the demon was per, uh, giving him. Okay? But in verse 38, um, well, now, did this man believe? We don't know. Okay? But we know from verse 38 the guy wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to follow him wherever he went. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say about that. So in verse 37, all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave. For they were gripped with fear, and he got into a boat, and he returned. Okay, now that's a rejection, okay? Everybody over there rejected him, okay? Okay, they were out of fear, okay? It was not a good fear. A good fear would lead, of Christ would lead to faith in him. But this is a bad fear. It leads to rejection of him. So they didn't want him around, so he gets in the boat, and he says, I won't be around. He's going to go back to the kosher side of the lake, right? So in verse 38, everybody rejected him except one man. It says, but the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. In other words, he wanted to go with him. It says he's begging. He was begging. Can anybody guess what tense? Just out of interest. You know, um, this is the tense that 
ongoing action and past time. Descriptive of an activity that goes on for a period of time. Imperfect. It's called the imperfect. Okay. In other words, the guy was asking him over and over and over, can I go with you? Can I, can I get in the boat? You know, that kind of thing. Okay, he wants to go be taught to learn. But at the end of the verse, look what Jesus says. Now, Jesus has always said, come follow me, right? But he doesn't say that here. This is a guy who wants to follow him, and he says, no. Isn't that interesting? No, I don't want you to follow me. Don't follow me. You say, what? He always says, follow me. No, don't. He sent him away and he said, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So, he went away. so the man went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now, why is it that Jesus didn't say, yeah, come follow me? Uh, Jesus' plan for all of our lives is not the same. His plan for your life is not the same as my life. My life is not the same as your life. Okay? Now, Jesus left, but he didn't want to leave himself without witness. That's what's happening here, right? He wants to leave this man as his witness there. Okay? So others can follow him, but this guy needs to stay because I need a witness here. So the guy stayed, and what did he do? He witnessed. He witnessed. Okay? In conclusion, uh, this man had been under extreme form of demonic possession. Okay? Jesus cast out the demons. That authenticated to his disciples that the teaching that I'm giving you is the very word of God. It also demonstrated to everyone who saw over there and to whom it was reported that Jesus had authority over the demonic realm and that he was, he was God. So this is another event that would help people who were on a quest to understand who he was, understand who he was. So, as far as the doctrine of demons, okay, let's make a few points. Demons and their relationship to the human race, okay? What can we say? Well, there's a lot we can say, but I'm just going to say a few things. First thing I'm going to say is this. Demon possession when a person's actually possessed by a demon, that's almost always related to personal sin. Okay, not to the fact that we all have a sin nature, but to personal sin that's committed by the individual. Okay? As a person sins, personal sin, they open up themselves to demonic possession. Okay? Um, now this, again, what I'm going to read you here, this quote comes out of a lot of studies related to this. So it's somewhat questionable, but I'm going to read it anyway. He said, Newport said, Satan normally cannot possess or control us except by our own consent. What he's talking about is like you open the door. You know, like you, you go in certain directions. Man's original decision made in the depths of his personality voluntarily opens his personality to a demonic invasion. It makes it possible for a person to come under bondage to the powers of evil. In other words, it's almost always related to a person's volitional choice, okay, to open themselves up to these things through sin, okay, through bringing sin, and, and this comes along with it. You're not just opening yourself to sin, you're, you're opening it up to demonic activity, is what he's saying. Of course, a believer can't be indwelt, we know that, but we can be, we can be suppressed, and we can be tempted, and we'll talk about a little, little bit about that, but... Second major point about uh, 
the doctrine of demons, is that uh, demons manifest themselves in the person's own sin patterns. In other words, what I'm saying here is they kind of like, it, everybody's got sin patterns, right? We all have certain tendencies, proclivities, okay? Yours may be lying, okay? Mine may be sex, whatever, okay? We all have certain sin patterns where we're kind of like toward a direction, okay? A sin pattern direction. Now, if the person that has that tendency gets indwelt by a demon, it exacerbates that. It just amplifies that, okay? He says, Newport writes this, the voices of the demons should generally be interpreted as the voices of the other self, the alter ego, although the content of what is said may very well be directed by the devil. So I used this quote earlier uh, because you, you can see it with this guy. This man, it's, it's his voice, but it's not his voice. It's, another, it's a demon speaking through him, but it's a legion, you know, a power. And it's just an ex exacerbation of the, guy, the problem that this guy had, which was powerless, more than likely. More than likely. Uh, and the third one, interesting area of study, demon activity is sometimes labeled as medical today. In other words, you've got a medical problem. Okay, but it could be demonic. Now, now, be very careful here. It's not always demonic. Actually, I have a friend who believes, not a close friend, but I have a friend. He believes that all medical conditions are demonic. Okay? I've got a text today because I texted him just to see what he'd say. And uh, he texts me back. You want me to read it? This will be interesting. He, uh, he works in this, this realm. Okay. Anyway, I just hear what he says. He says, in a blanket sense, I believe all sickness is demonic. <laughs> With respect to demonic possession and or oppression, a lesser assault, I have found the most prominent of such to be mental disorders closely followed by any form of cancer or aggressive tumor. Okay. I don't agree with him, but uh, because the Bible uses constructions like sickness, chi, demon, meaning two separate things, not the same thing, okay? But some can, and that's the point I'm making here. Sometimes um, we can become so scientific in a society that we want to label everything as a, with a medical term when it could actually be, be demonic. Okay, now how, how would we know, Okay. Here, here's some ideas, okay? If, if a person takes medicine and it's ineffective, it's possible it's a demon. I didn't say it was. It's possible. If the person, okay, is completely averse to Christ, completely opposed to Christ, and it could, be, it could be demonic, okay? If the person demonstrates they have supernatural knowledge, like knowledge you could not acquire in any other way, then that would indicate it's, it could be demonic. It's demonic. Um, if there's supernatural activity that happens around the person, like levitations and things like that, it's probably not a medical condition. <laughs> okay? It's probably demonic. Okay? Okay? Otherwise, it's, it probably is medical. Okay? Now, of course, like I said, a, a Christian cannot be uh, demonically possessed because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, okay? But we can, as Christians, be demonically suppressed, okay? And the differences are quite large. All we would say is that if a Christian is being suppressed, we would say there's going to be certain characteristics of this person. For example, they're, as a Christian, they're antagonistic to Scripture. 
As a Christian, they, have, they doubt extensively. Not that they doubt, everybody doubts, but they doubt extensively. They're continually depressed. They're unable to pray and read the Bible. Okay? They're blasphemous. They're always agitated, and they're suicidal. Those could, could, I didn't say they are, could be indications that they're demonically suppressed. Okay? But again, these are just general trends. They're not foolproof. In summary, then, what, what, can we, what are some things we can learn from this passage? First of all, you know, um, demons are real spirit beings who are in the world. I mean, there's a whole other dimension, you know, that we often forget about because we live in, a scientific, in the scientific West. I mean, everything has to be nailed down by numbers. Have you ever noticed? Okay, statistics. Uh, yeah. Because of that, what happens? We tend to forget there's this whole demonic realm. We tend to forget Ephesians 6. Hey, I've got to put on the armor of God because Satan and the demons are out there prowling around like a roaring lion trying to destroy me every day. That's not, I'll tell you right now, that's not how I wake up in the morning. I do not wake up. I'm like, where's my coffee? You know, I've got to get to work. I've got to get to homeschool. I've got to grade these papers. I've got to, you know, all the things I've got to do, you know. And I, I'm, I, the last thing I'm thinking of usually is, the demonic assault that's going to happen that day. I'm thinking, what's the weather pattern going to look like? That's scientific, see? I go around to weather patterns, you know, do I need to put the top of my Jeep? You know, does it rain? Who cares? After a while, who even cares? Uh, so it's, it's just this mentality, okay? Second, demons are opposed to God. Well, that should be obvious. They're the enemies of God. They're, they're not the friends of God, Okay. Third, demon possession is a real phenomena. There are people in the world today who are demon-possessed, okay? Um, guess what? These people are in a very bad situation, and they need deliverance. I always tell people that the way to deliverance is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and who comes in you? The Holy Spirit. Well, what has to go out? The demon. So we don't get into, like, a lot of these exorcisms and stuff. Jesus did that, but we don't do that. Fourth, Jesus is more, the gospel does that. Fourth, Jesus is more powerful than any number of demons. That's what he demonstrated. He is the all-powerful, almighty God. A whole legion, he said, out. And that's it. They have to obey. Fifth, Jesus has compassion on those who are possessed, and he wants to see them delivered. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done this. Okay, he wants that. Six, Jesus cast out demons as a demonstration of his power and authority. Okay, he did this on a small scale on that occasion to demonstrate he has the ability to do it on a large scale when he comes back to establish the kingdom on earth. Every demon will be isolated in the abyss for a thousand years, and they can't do a thing about it because he's going to send them there. Uh, seventh, some people are attracted to what Jesus does, and others are repelled. Now, almost everybody was repelled there on that instance, right? Only one guy was attracted to what he did and wanted to follow him, but didn't get to. <laughs> but um, isn't that the way it is a lot of times in life? You know, there's only a few people that respond positively in our whole life, in our whole life. And then eighth, those who are attracted should make, uh, take the good news and proclaim it wherever they may be. And isn't that what the guy did? The guy went about proclaiming that throughout Gerasa and the whole region of Gadara. And that's the same thing, that's the same response we should have, right? Because while we weren't probably demon-possessed, I don't know, maybe you were, and you came to Christ, but we were enslaved to sin. We were under the penalty of sin. We are lost forever. I mean, our eternal destiny was a lake of fire until we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
At that point, what? We ought to be thankful and tell other people because their destiny is a lake of fire unless they believe, right? I mean, that's it. Can you imagine all these people you know? Can I imagine all the people I know? Destiny is a lake of fire forever? Really? Okay. We ought to go about proclaiming it just like this guy did so they can believe and be saved as well. All right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sign that was done through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, manifesting his tremendous power. We can't wait until he takes all the demons of the world and casts them out and locks them away for a whole millennium to see what the world will be like without their presence, without their influence, without their possession of humans. The world is going to be a tremendously different place, all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who has the power to do this. And humans have this vain idea that we can fix the planet when they are the ones who are totally deceived by Satan and his demons who are energizing them. There's no fixing of the human planet by human beings. It's only by the Lord Jesus Christ that he can remove this terrible problem that's behind the scenes, that's ever-present in our daily life. Help us to be aware of it, to put on the armor of God daily, and to defend ourselves against our foes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.